Jonathan Mintenburn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Nabin, and we are tuning in from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you expert guests and test frontier ideas. Today, we're joined by Dane Lund, core contributor at AllianceDAO, along with Dr. Aaron Lane from RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. Thank you each for joining us. Thanks very much, Kelsey, for, uh, for having us. Yeah, thanks, Kelsey, and uh, yeah, great, great to connect in with uh, with Dane, long time follower, uh, first time caller, I guess. So, on that note, welcome to the podcast, Dane. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're up to. So, your background across uh, academia and industry, and then what is Alliance DAO? Absolutely. So, uh, I'm a core contributor of Alliance DAO. Um, I, I really joined to um, build out the architecture of the DAO, um, and we can talk about and what that means in a second, but just a little bit of background and how I got here. Um, I started my career as an attorney. Um, I practiced uh, corporate governance litigation, and I also did you know share, shareholder rights um, kind of boardroom uh, procedure. Uh, I then transferred you know my career into finance. Um, I was an investment banker. I focused on uh, leverage lending. And then I became, uh, you know, an investor in several capacities, really focusing on bringing the law and finance together. So it's my last conventional job as I was in litigation finance. Um, and then, you know, during the pandemic, I revisited a you know, deep interest of mine. I had gotten into crypto investing on a personal basis in about 2016, um, and I got very into the applications. And that's when I really kind of latched onto DAOs. Um, I started by focusing on advocacy, uh, specifically targeting state policy. Um, I wanted states to recognize DAOs as legal entities. And through that, I ended up uh, meeting Alliance as they were um, you know, in the process of thinking about uh, launching a DAO. So I'll, I'll, I'll kind of go to the second part of your question, which is, you know, so, so, so what am I up to now? Um, I am working on building the alumni association that, um, is fed by Alliance's accelerator. So Alliance runs the premier kind of web three accelerator. Um, we've had, you know, we're, we're on cohort number nine. We've had some excellent protocols, tools, um, DAOs come through our, uh, ecosystem and the DAO is really targeted at forming an alumni association on the theory that most alumni association structures um, lead to tremendous value leakage. Um, if you look at many universities, once people graduate, there's kind of a surge of enthusiasm early on and then a massive drop off and maybe a spike later in life when people are focused on legacy or you know their children going to college. But after that, there's really not much participation. We believe that a DAO is a superior structure for that type of endeavor. Um, it allows for tracking participation over time. It allows for uh, you know tracking ones like you know uh, inputs and their their ownership of the outcomes for the for the uh, for the DAO. Um, and so we're very optimistic that this structure will lead to a much more valuable endeavor than our traditional alumni association. So it's quite an interesting pathway into Web3, and I'd love to dive into some of those ideas around DAO design and, and DAO architecture. Uh, but first of all, what is it like working in a DAO? I guess it's this nascent kind of field, definitely a nascent area of research in terms of uh, DAO labor and working for a DAO versus, uh, you know, you said your last conventional job and there's sort of this delineation there. Certainly. So, you know, as to, um, you know, Alliance, it's still it's still very early um, in the process. And so what I'd say is at the early stage, there's a very, you know, significant focus on what the initial state of DAO is going to be. Um, you know, the, the founding members of any DAO have the ability to kind of define the contours of, of the inception or excuse me, the, the, the beginning of the DAO. And, uh, and then there's the great release to the community. Um, and so I think there's, there's 
a lot of complexity of thought. However, it's focused on simplicity of design. So, um, you know, my, my theory on DAOs is that, you know, being very simple in the early stage with um, the ability for the community to add complexity based on iteration is really important. And then I'd say, you know, through other DAO participation like, uh, you know, Gitcoin, where I'm uh, a member of the Mutual Grants Committee or uh, Optimism, where I'm a delegate, like those are, those are kind of in different stages. Um, and there, uh, I think that it's very interesting to have an extremely collaborative environment where different participants have different leadership roles at different times. Um, there's, there's definitely some uh, work that needs to be done on just what, what governance means and, and how to make effective decisions. But there's also a spirit that pervades, you know, what I'd call early DAO culture um, that leads to a lot of kind of collaboration and not as much ego in the management. And that's a really exciting thing. Yeah, and you're also involved with me on the World Economic Forum DAO Policy Toolkit in contributing to that. But uh, with Alliance DAO, for example, because you're involved in the early stages as a core contributor, what are some of the principles or frameworks or existing institutional models that you look to in designing a DAO, if any? (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's a really good question. I mean, one of the analogs that we do look at is like a university system. I don't think it's perfect because um, I think our ambitions are, you know, greater than just a pure university. However, um, I think that you can see a multi-entity or multi-faceted you know, approach where there are different, there, there, there are some zones that are, that are not really internal to the DAO. They're more at the perimeter. I would describe our accelerator that way. Um, the accelerator operates very much like a conventional business um, today. And it does that because it's really kind of perfected, or, or I should say, is working on perfecting um, what programming for early stage founders looks like. And it's a system that works very well with a small team, um, doesn't really need to be decentralized. Um, similarly, universities have bureaucratic structures. Um, they're, they're, you know, there's clear delineation of power. Uh, they are kind of fairly centralized, but then there is a distributed aspect to those graduates who have some affinity um, toward the university. They contribute, they do things to further the university's interests. It's not always recorded um, and it's not always coordinated. Um, and so, you know, alumni association is very similar to, I think, a form of DAO. Um, and then at the, at the perimeter, there are also other things like the athletic organizations, um, you know, student interest groups, like things that make the university ecosystem what it is. I think that's a good analog. Um, I also tend to think of, um, you know, governmental structures. So the early stage of a DAO is more like a political formation than it is like a corporate formation. Um, so, you know, I, I guess I am a bit of a history nerd. I look at what it's like to form governments and how groups decide to kind of submit to some form of rule. Um, and I think that's the best paradigm versus what corporate governance looks like for the early stage of a DAO. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, our colleagues do a lot on the corporate governance side, but what I'm hearing is your framework is driven by the purpose of the specific DAO. And because you're looking at alumni models, you're looking at you know universities and what it means for more participatory models there. Um, Aaron, just jumping to your kind of insights on this, Uh, We've had long and uh, lengthy conversations about uh, this concept of DAO legal personality. And I know part of the question of formation for DAO teams is how do you actually register the entity to kind of provide some, you know, legal protections to the the team founding the DAO? Um, What are your thoughts on the kind of options here and then also the risks for individuals participating in DAOs? 
Yeah, great, great questions. Um, but if, if you might indulge me for a second, I'd, I'd love to pick up this thread on uh, the the analogy with a university, um, because uh, I, along with uh, a couple of others in the, the hub, um, put out this essay series actually on, on the future of kind of universities. And in, in one of those um, parts, we, we talk about universities being you know, a platform and universities being, you know, a 15-sided market where you've got, um, you know, you've got students and you've got different, you know, you've got foreign students, you've got postgraduate students, you've got domestic undergrads, you know, for instance. Um, you've got employers and donors and um, research customers and then you've got regulators and education departments and the national government and, and, and so on. And, and there are... Then over the other side, you've got, you know, parents and, you know, academics and researchers and alumni groups and, and so on. I, th I think all up, we counted 15 of these sides to the, the university. And so it's, it's quite a, um, uh, I, I think that both universities can learn something from how um, uh, DAOs uh, are governed in the same way that perhaps um, DAOs can learn something, you know, from, from the analogy about, how uni uh, universities are governed. So I, I think it cuts uh, that analogy, I think is really powerful, but it also cuts both ways, um, which I think is the, the, the key point. Um, on, on the regulatory kind of risk side of, of things, um, you know, th this is really starting to heat up a bit. Um, wh why are people worried about, um, you know, kind of, kind of these things? Well, uh, Principally because DAOs are, are not an incorporated um, entity, or or at least um, not incorporated first. Often, um, typically, what you see is you know group of individuals coming together, working on a project, and then it kind of morphs into something. And then um, we're going to sort of slowly put this thing out in the wild. Uh, and then people start to think, oh, hey, what actually is this in a, in a legal sense? And I've got to say that that is not uncommon in any business environment. You, you often see this, um, whether it's a, you know, a, a small retail business or whether it is um, people that are, you know, that might, might be friends or family that are coming together to pursue some business opportunity and they really haven't thought any bit about what legal structure they might adopt. They kind of just get on with the work and they, they get going and they, they start um, making money. And, and it's only when some sort of dispute arises and that dispute could be with uh, a supplier or a customer or another uh, or, or, or amongst the partners themselves. And it's really only at that point that um, people start to question, or well, what, what is what is this arrangement? So, I, I think the yeah the the first thing to say is you know this idea that we don't quite know what the structure is. That's a problem we see every single day in um, uh, you know kind of traditional industries. It's it's not something that's new to to Web three. Um, but that that follows. You know, the second point is that. Um, you know, people kind of need to, to get advice uh, about these things and about how to, to structure any sort of entity, whether it's a, a DAO or otherwise. Um, and the default setting, though, in pretty much all jurisdictions is going to be that it's either going to be a general partnership or an unincorporated association, pretty much depending on whether it's a for-profit um, entity or, or whether it's a more of a full purpose uh, entity. So why is that a problem? Well, both of those structures uh, are ones where you don't have any limited liability. And so that's, that's really what's driving a lot of um, the discussion, I think at least, is Participants in DAOs, um, holders of tokens, people that are actively involved in decision-making power, or those that are leading these projects uh, are increasingly kind of concerned about their their legal exposure. 
um, and wanting to now investigate kind of avenues for, for incorporation. And uh, again, that is not uh, unique to Web3. That happens kind of everywhere um, where people are considering, right, what, what structure are we going to adopt here? Yeah, Aaron, I think that's that's very well put. I, I, I think what you said about universities, like we could spend um, several hours on that. So um, I'm with you on, uh, on, on, on how interesting it is to study relative to DAOs. On the regulatory front, I, I agree. I mean, one of the ways we talk about it at Alliance um, is that DAOs are illegible to the state. So um, my colleague, Mike Favshak, put out a paper called illegible enterprises um, that, that covers this concept, but uh, in in their call it primitive form, DAOs are political acts. Um, getting back to our formation conversation, and so you know it's it's almost like a declaration of sovereignty, which doesn't make sense to a state um, for for some entity to, to declare sovereignty. So we 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 don't believe that you know at this point DAOs are sovereign in any way. Um, but it leads to a real difficulty when thinking about what type of entity um, best suits a DAO. And we've seen uh, experiments um, in, in many jurisdictions. Like I'm actually much more interested right now in some of the international jurisdictions. Um, but pointing out, you know, in the States, Wyoming has been a real pioneer in, in creating a DAO LLC. Um, I don't think it's perfect, but... It is an attempt at giving limited liability while recognizing that a DAO is different from many other structures. Um, and I know internationally, um, you know, getting to some of the work at the World Economic Forum, there's, uh, you know, the COLA. Um, and, and what's interesting, though, is if you consider how different jurisdictions are approaching DAOs, um, they can lead to some conflict. Like, you know, COLA, for instance, is very focused on permissionless permissionless nature of DAO theory, um, which would kind of lead toward an open protocol, which by definition would have tokens that are freely traded in the public. In the U.S., uh, there's much more of a focus on you know, pri private um, entities. And, and to the extent that they become permissionless, uh, they run into other regulatory issues. So I think something that needs to be rectified um, is kind of a cross-jurisdictional thesis on how to recognize DAOs because by their nature, um, they are multi-jurisdictional. It's very hard to say where a DAO is actually located. You could, you could look at like token holder concentration, that's one way, but then you could also look at you know, contributor activity and then you could look at validation many different ways to kind of look at where a DAO is located, which means that there has to be more coordination on how the international community recognizes DAOs for them to function at their highest, you know, um, potential. So I'm really interested in furthering the dialogue. And I, I love that, you know, we're speaking um, because it's in the spirit of getting a unified theory of DAO's value DAO's kind of structure, function, and ultimately recognition. Yeah, was there a specific direction that you put forward uh, or something you wanted to emphasize or convey through the WEF uh, policy toolkit on DAO process? Yeah, I think that, you know, my, my mission in participating, um, you know, with the World Economic Forum is to emphasize that DAOs are in their early phase. Um, there, are, there are some theories on why they're very, they're very valuable. I, I think that ultimately bootstrapping networks that are able to track participation will prove to be incredibly valuable, but they'll only be able to realize what they're able to do with um, recognition from regulatory bodies that there should be some sphere for experimentation. And that sphere for experimentation is not without risk. I think that there will be failures. Um, and in fact, I think there need to be failures for us to learn what's actually valuable. 
I, I describe myself as a Dow minimalist, meaning I think that about two to five percent of you know human organizations could be replaced by DAOs, um, which which necessarily means that there will be attempts at replacing you know private corporations or whatever it might be that that just don't work. And we need to learn from those things. The, the beauty of DAOs versus governments is that DAOs can rapidly fail and build a body of knowledge. Whereas if governments were to rapidly fail, it would be you know just absolutely uh, apocalyptic. So um, I think we should recognize the value of this moment in experimenting in human governance and organizations. And so my, my real kind of focus on input there is to counsel um, openness to experimentation and, and guiding policy toward regulation, sure, that protects, you know, the public, but does so in a way that still permits um, a very valuable new tool to be created. Well, there's a, a bunch of different threads that I could pick up on, on there, um, but uh, I, I might pick to Kelsey in the interests of, uh, of of not talking for too long, but uh, w- w- one of those threads, um, you know, just on the on the failure point, I think I think it's a great one. Um, I think never throughout human history have we able to uh, are we able to fail on this sort of political governance, if you like, in a way that doesn't lead to you know huge sort of violent overthrows of, of uh, you know, established orders and those sorts of things. Um, and so I think what we're going to see over, over the next, you know, maybe a few decades is this, uh, you know, huge experimentation, you know, with governance that we've never really seen before. And I think from a, you know, from a research uh, sort of perspective, I, I think that's really, really fascinating. Um but just to go back to a, a point you made about, well, wh- where are these things located? Uh, I think that's a really key question that um, we've got to grapple with. But I think people are going to come at that from from different angles, to, depending on on where they're situated. Like if you're a, if you're a, a, a DAO, um, there, there's a problem in. What does you know? What does the DAO know? Where is the DAO located? You know, what's the you know controlling mind and, and will of the DAO? I don't, I don't think we've got there yet. In the same way that um, we have established those legal principles um, for corporations, but we we don't really have the same uh, kind of you know theoretical toolkit uh, to deal with that for these organisations that you know, are, as you say, geographically dispersed and, and so on. But I think one perspective, though, is is from regulators. And I think the, the attitude that regulators are taking that, hey, if you are doing activity in, let's say, the United States, um, and we've got uh, people that are located in the United States on the Dow side, and we've got, uh, you know, kind of, Others are making payments that are located in, in the U.S. Uh, on on the other side, uh, and hey, we're a U.S. regulator. We're going to regulate U.S. activity, and, and that looks like U.S. activity. Um, and we've seen this recently with the SEC that has filed um, really a number of, of lawsuits. But the, the one I'm thinking of um, in in particular is one that um, kind of crypto Twitter went uh, a bit nuts about. Uh, a, f- a few weeks back, and um, you know, th- there was an in, buried on I think page thirty-nine or something of you know of of fifty-page um, uh, you know legal claim was a sentence about um, uh, the Ethereum validators were more densely uh, located in the U.S. than anywhere else, and therefore. Um, you know, the SEC as a U.S. regulator has jurisdiction uh, over over this. And people went nuts about it thinking, hey, you know, this, this means that the, the SEC are, are claiming jurisdiction over, I guess, the Ethereum, um, you, you know, network in its entirety. Uh, I gave some comments at the Times, you know, sort of saying, I don't think that's 
quite what they're saying um, and everyone needs to calm down just a little bit um, because, you know, what they were, uh, if you if you read the context of, of what was written, they're sort of saying, well, in, in that case, it was to do with payments that were being made from people, you know, to uh, really another another person and or at least another another address that was controlled by by a person and so you, you're dealing with US defendants um, US uh, kind of third parties um, and you're dealing with a US regulator and so it's pretty clear that um, a US regulator is going to regulate things that um, kind of the people are doing in the US uh, I, I, so I, I think that's that's one angle that we can kind of see right. That that kind of makes sense. What's less clear is um, uh, some of the stuff that has again come up in in the last week, where uh, the CFTC, which is the for those playing at home, um, the, effectively the commodities regulator in the US, rather than the securities regulator. Um, they've filed a few suits against and named DAOs as defendants. And uh, there was some news yesterday, uh, I think, that um, the way that they've served uh, this DAO is by you know, serving the papers through some chat bot on the website somewhere, which is an interesting kind of uh, legal thing. Um, but that's kind of what we're seeing in the US is this regulation by enforcement kind of approach where uh, we, we, we don't have a lot of specific regulation on crypto, blockchain more broadly. So instead, we've got kind of regulators bringing these, bringing these actions. Um, obviously, that increases in people's minds the, the risk about um, not just kind of being a close contributor on DAO projects, but also just even even holding tokens and, and participating at, at perhaps a lower level. So I, I think it's interesting, um, and, and I want to touch on both of those cases, but my my takeaway in a lot of what's going on in the U.S. regulatory side is like, we don't even have the words to approach some of these problems, right? So um, if we look at, you know, the, the Bellina case, which is the SEC uh, matter that you mentioned, um, you know, the, the SEC in some ways is making a strategic move in being as broad as they possibly can to claim jurisdiction, even though there were much more specific grounds for jurisdiction in that case. And if I were to look into a crystal ball, I would predict that the court um, would not need to go so far as to um, rule on whether or not ETH validation matters to assert jurisdiction in this case, meaning the SEC is throwing in the kitchen sink and also trying to send a message to the broader market that they believe that ETH validation is a legitimate means for saying that activity occurs in the U.S. But, you know, at the core, um, the, the case was a matter of, you know, pursuing claims against a promoter and the promoter allegedly raised funds in the U.S., from U.S. persons, um, and so it's pretty clear that, that that on its own would be enough to assert jurisdiction, but it is alarming, um, and, and I think it's it's mutually alarming. It's alarming the, the regulators that they don't have the tools necessarily to approach um, novel uh, kind of situations, and it's alarming to those who are in novel situations that words and, and overbroad theories are being thrown at them. So there is a matter of misunderstanding there. It's not entirely pernicious. Um, and then on the CFTC, I think that's a really interesting one. It really came as a surprise to the broader U.S. kind of uh, crypto legal bar, if you will, or just like policy. <laughs> I love that. Um, you know, I, I look, I, I see what everyone's saying. And um, the idea that, um, you know, you can serve, number one, that, Members who vote on a DAO action um, could somehow be uh, liable for much broader matters. Meaning, if we were to vote on a governance matter in a, in a protocol, and that protocol itself had been conceived as an illegal act, uh, 
Like, are we, are we violating the law merely by voting on, you know, a matter that could be entirely, um, you know, quotidian? If we vote on, you know, whether the protocol changes its website uh, format, does that make us participants in an illegal scheme? Uh, I would argue absolutely not. Um, but when we're being overbroad in legal theories, um, we might say, well, anyone who votes is therefore liable. That is incredibly chilling to the DAO community and um, surprising given the regulator was seen to be as the more favorable um, between the CFTC and the SEC. That, and then that's what surprised me the most, actually, yeah. um, because because I'd, I'd been saying for a while now, um, you know, because we, we're seeing this play out, right, in, in terms of the regulatory discussion. You know, who gets to regulate crypto? Is it going to be the SEC? Is it going to be the CFTC? And a lot of people have been saying, and myself included, have been saying, well, the CFTC has invested a lot in capacity and, and staff, and they're pretty, they're known as being pretty crypto friendly. And so I was surprised to see this, this being brought. I, I think it caught most people by surprise. I'm not sure the CFTC understood how much it might catch people by surprise. And it leads to um, a really important distinction. Um, I describe it as the, the difference between principles with a capital P and principles with a small p. We're seeing regulators go after, you know, situations where uh, if the facts are true, it's more or less likely there was a bad actor, right? And so I call that principles with a small p in this case because, you know, in, this, in the facts as they are, there may be some bad action. But then there's principles with a capital P, like what we stand for and what we really want in terms of, you know, procedural rules. And it seems to me that uh, they're being, uh, they're, they're not giving uh, due attention to what that means for the broader landscape, such that good actors who might want to look through their opinions for guidance and then make decisions on how they build things can actually draw good conclusions or, or just sound conclusions. What I take from that is there's a morass of potentially, um, potentially invalid uh, kind of legal argument that's going on. I expect, I would expect without you know, knowing the future that some of that gets paired back, but I don't know where the line is. I don't know where a court over the course of potentially, you know, six months to years um, decides that line is, and then there is a line of appeal. So this matter of kind of regulating by saying the most broad thing and then leaving it to the courts is an incredibly um, murky way of sending signals to the market because, um, you know, there are a lot of people who aren't trying to create, um, you know, protocols that violate some core regulation. They're trying to create communities, alumni associations, unions, um, universities, whatever it might be. But they still have to listen to what's happening and they have to, to intuit and listen to their lawyers to intuit um, where the regulations may fall or where the courts might say they fall. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And, and some of this is going to be up to the lawyers as, as well, because um, if, uh, if, if you get a situation where the, the lawyers might not want to uh, – you know, want to have a fight about particular aspects of it. So if we think about the, the SEC case that we've been mentioning, um, the, the lawyers just might want to concede jurisdiction. And in, in that case, uh, it, it would not be, I, I guess, a, a, a legal issue or a, a fact an issue in the particular case. And so you don't get any real precedent on it because the court doesn't really have to make a decision on that. It's kind of just accepted by the parties. And I, I guess that goes to the the uncertainty aspect of it, um, which which is interesting because I think a lot of the time, uh, really, really up until up until recently, the, the prevailing wisdom was that, um, you know, that the courts are the best place to kind of figure these things out. They're, they're more flexible. They can take into account uh, the, the situations of the parties and the, and the commercial context and, and, and so on. And all of that is very true um, uh, as opposed to regulation, which is, you know, top down rather than bottom up. And, and it's, it's by design, it's, it's pretty inflexible. Um, 
Whereas what's interesting is that seems to have flipped. Um, that that people are saying no, we we need the uh, you know some sort of top down regulatory uh, approach so that we have the the certainty kind of going into these things. So I would agree that we need to have a structure that really contemplates the potential that the technology presents and the market as it is. Um, what I'd say is that there's a deficiency in dialogue between policymakers and people who are actually building things. There are some intermediaries who are working to further the dialogue, but I think that, you know, in the states, senators and, and representatives have, have yet to hear from people who are building, you know, on Ethereum or or yet to even contemplate what a layer two might mean or, or right. you know, an alternate alternate layer one. Um, and I, I imagine that, you know, across the world, it, there's a similar disconnect because at Alliance, we see we have a very international group like and, and we see that the builders are head down in their work where we, we think they should be. Um, but that means they're building value effectively in a silo. And that value may not kind of show itself to the world for years um, because, you know, difficult, um, you know, mechanisms take time to build. And so we're in this position where we agree there needs to be a new regulatory scheme but the information that's being conferred to the people who actually make the policy um, is very um, is is lacking, um, and so so one of my big focuses is you know trying to find a conduit for builders to actually get their voice out there and show use cases um, such that the council's some caution um, and prudence in creating regulations versus heavy-handed actions based on, you know, demonstration of a few bad actors. If we regulated every industry based on only the bad actors, um, we would end up, you know, eliminating a ton of value from the world economy. Um, but unfortunately, in, in blockchain, we either have Bitcoin, which, you know, everyone has now agreed is, is decentralized, so there's no actor. Or we have, you know, a number of examples of unsavories, and then we have a few. You know, there's always Vitalik we can point to as, as somebody who's very knowledgeable and, and actually considers the good. But I think that there is this layer of builders that's totally anonymous to policymakers. A lot of them are identified; they're not anons, um, but they're they're unknown to the world, and their works won't be seen for some time. And uh, I, I just hate to see their work be complicated by hasty regulation. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great point. And I, I think one of the things that I think some politicians are saying is, uh, hold on a second, we, we shouldn't do anything until we properly understand this space. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's kind of the reverse of the precautionary principle. You know, often what we hear in regulatory discussions is, we need to regulate the hell out of this thing until we understand what its effects are, uh, and then we might let you guys use it. Um, in, instead, we're we're getting the uh, hang on. We don't understand this thing. Let's let's not regulate it until we understand it, um, because we don't want to uh, we don't want to do the wrong thing. Um, so yeah, I, I think the, the the more we can get, um, you know, people that have a deep understanding uh, of of the tech, how it's being built, what its applications are, I think that that's going to make for a, uh, a really nice outcome. So well, yeah, well done on that mission. It's, it's, it's a work in progress. Uh, you know, I think there's also, there is a lot of skepticism, you know, there, there's some regulators who say like, just come in and talk to us, but um, you know, their actions have spoken louder than their invitations. Um, if a regulator later says, come in and talk to us, but you know, then, then a participant goes in and ends up getting, you know, served with a subpoena on the spot. <laughs> right. that, that, that is um, a duplicitous thing to say. Um, and so we need a demonstration of effectively a neutral ground for these conversations in order to enable uh, the people who are, who are building for the future to step up because the individual incentive, and this is something we you know talk about 
um, quite a bit kind of in, in the community at Alliance, et cetera. The individual incentive for anyone who's trying to build something valuable is not to get embroiled in a policy battle. The individual incentive is to focus on programming or focus on, you know, community building, whatever that might be. And uh, so, so the, the problem we're faced with is that everyone's following the appropriate individual incentive, but then the community value proposition is not served. So I, I, tr I try to be one of the people to carry that banner, but we need about, you know, uh, about, you know, a few hundred of, of the three of us out there advocating for the, the good part of blockchain, of crypto, um, in order to be successful in communicating the, uh, the mission, the values, and the message. So I just want to pick up on something you mentioned before and kind of shift gears a little bit. You talked about, you know, you see the kind of broad possibilities of DAOs that some percent of organizations would, you know, suit this less hierarchical um, institutional model. Uh, and that's a really interesting point. I recently um, addressed the uh, workshop on platform governance uh, with the European Commission Observatory of Online Platform Governance. And the speaker after me kind of did this whole talk about how DAOs will never take over, will never replace existing platforms. Whereas, you know, I completely don't see that as the uh, ambition or agenda. I think it's about the the fact that they have the possibility to exist and this is why the advocacy and the legal personality and some sort of legal certainty is really important. And so I guess my question is, you know, what are your thoughts on the possibilities of DAOs and and where they're most um, valuable or useful? So I think, I think that we have yet to find all of the use cases. I think I could, uh, I'm going to first find somewhere I, I think we can exclude, um, you know, DAOs as the optimal form. So, you know, certain businesses that require centralization or, you know, trade secrets and opacity. I always like to give the example of Coca-Cola, um, you know, governing the recipe by, uh, you know, committee would not be uh, the ideal outcome. However, I think that there are certain circumstances in which Either localized governance of an economic means is very helpful. So an example I would give is, you know, an infrastructure project that affects a very specific, um, you know, community. Um, you know, for instance, figuring out what tolls to create to service a road that could be done by a community, you know, governed protocol. Um, I've already given alumni associations. I mentioned unions. Um, I also think that consensus finding mechanisms. So you can imagine a world in which AI, which very soon will become much more important, um, but there is potentially disagreement between different AI platforms on you know what the the answer to a certain question is. Meaning we could have different algorithms effectively vote on you know what the appropriate answer to a question might be what the you know appropriate assessment of a certain fact set could be and i think that would be an excellent use of a dao i think that what people often miss is that governance can be quite simple um, in the construct and the pace of upgrades or changes to the rules could be quite slow which is not extremely exciting for the human contributor, but is potentially extremely valuable for the utility that's created. So I, I think that, you know, kind of based on that specific point, which I'm very uh, optimistic will be a good use of case for DAOs, we, we just haven't seen all the ways in which this kind of form of organization can be valuable. We haven't defined where DAOs win in a way that we can make you know, a ton of exclusions. I can give you very like big clusters that I think are exclusions, but then there's a set of organizations that's left over that I think are great places to start um, experimenting. I think it's a great point about the, the confidential kind of information 
part. Um, I, I think it's a really important one, and and we've we've seen this in DAOs, um, not not in a, in a in a kind of huge sort of fundamental way necessarily, but um, uh, if you recall the the experiment with Constitution DAO, which was spun up within you know a few days to raise uh, money to purchase you know, a, a copy of uh, the, the U.S. Constitution that was that was being put up for auction. Um, now, uh, what it was, what that showed is what, what a DAO is good at. Well, um, mobilizing uh, a huge group of people that have got kind of a common interest in something um, and being able to commit funding to it uh, in uh, in, in a matter of days was was huge. You know, they raised 40 something million million dollars uh, seemingly overnight. That was the that was the pro of that organization. The big con is that well, they signaled to other prospective buyers what their budget was, what their maximum bid was ever going to be. And so uh, what what that meant was that that you know you, you just had to have a dollar more in your reserve and you were kind of fine. Right. So I, I completely agree with that. Um, uh, that, that assessment, any, anywhere you've got kind of trade secrets or, um, you know, intellectual, um, property that you want to kind of keep really tight and controlled, um, that that's going to always look like a, a much more centralized, organization but the the thing that I, that I would add to Dane's points is the ability to spin up and shut down really rapidly that um, that uh, that we that that one percent of kind of all organizations or, or, or whatever the percentage might be um, the the thing we can probably add to that though is the ability for these organizations not to have a long shelf life. You know, if you think about a, a public, um, you know, traded company, that thing is going to operate for a long time just by virtue of the transaction costs that went into setting it up. Um, you know, any any public company is, is going to take, uh, you know, a huge amount of, of cost in, in getting lawyers and, and accountants and, and finance types and, and all the rest just to really establish that thing and list it on the stock market or whatever. So kind of by design almost, by virtue of those transaction costs, that, that organization is going to stick around. Um, there are exceptions, of course, but but as a rule. Whereas the barrier to entry for, for DAOs in terms of, of setup costs is significantly, uh, significantly low and trivial in some cases. And so... Very grateful for your time uh, while you're on a uh, DAO organization retreat in Bogota, Dane, and I know it's late. Um, So I will move to the final um, question today before asking if you've got any more comments and where people can find you. But I know that you're guest lecturing at the moment on DAOs at Cornell, and you have a fantastic reading list uh, with kind of a legal emphasis in a tweet thread that I'll share in the show notes. Uh, what are some of the common insights that you hope to emphasize for people, uh, misconceptions, or what do you wish that everyone knew? That, that's a great question. So I think that I'll draw a few of the themes that we've spoken about today. Um, one is the, the need for considering the nexus between broader governmental rules and you know, societal value and whatever is being kind of regulated. And I think we're moving into an era where, where this is an example. We'll see many more examples of novel creations from the technological world that need to be assessed and understood from the policy layer. And so there needs to be effectively a, a, like a means for governments to assess what's coming out of of the economy very rapidly and uh, make determinations that don't kill valuable use cases. Um, I also think that, you know, given that this is a lecture to the law school, um, you know, I want to talk about the, the kind of tension in the legal ethic 
between, you know, viewing the law in, in terms of static rules and principles. So where the law is today, and then thinking about the law in a creative or flexible manner, where the law can be. I see a, a lack of, you know, what I'd say is I see fewer creative ideas in the legal community than are needed to propel um, DAOs and other novel creations forward. Um, there are definitely creative attorneys in the community, but the community itself is very small. And so something I would like to see come out of, you know, law schools worldwide is a new type of legal thinker that's, that's guided toward how do we make the future better versus how do we deal with the rules that are on the table now and the static reality. Um, and one of the kind of issues I see in kind of Anglo-American jurisprudence is that the, the Anglo-American legal system has worked very well with trial and error. Um, the system is what it is now, a new fact occurs, we reassess and we change very gradually. That works when change is gradual, but now we have change that's a step function. And so we need to, we need to help lawyers understand how to deal with punctual, punctual um, change versus gradual change. Um, I, I also think that, you know, a takeaway that I want for the students there is that you know, th there's a new possibility for attorneys to be, you know, political thinkers as well, both on the policy side, but in the DAO context, in terms of forming a governance system. I think that's really exciting. I don't think we've seen that for a very long time. Um, and it's something that should speak to anyone who's interested in the early stage of government. Um, because I think that this, this craft of governance is just getting started. Even if I'm a Dow minimalist, if you take two to 5% of human organizations, that's a, a massive number that could be served by this form. And I think we're going to need, you know, political thinkers to enter the field and help think about how to design rule systems for human and machine interactions. Incredible. And where can people find you and follow your work? Absolutely. So um, I'm, I'm most responsive on Twitter, which is at Lund underscore Dane. Um, and, you know, you can always, uh, if you're building something, you know, go to alliance.xyz uh, and apply to one of our accelerator cohorts. Um, you know, I think that that's where I spend most of my time working with entrepreneurs. So I invite anyone to check it out. Thanks so much to Dane Lund and, of course, Aaron Lane from the Blockchain Innovation Hub. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes, including links to further research at rmitblockchain.io.